I'm Andrew Silcox, the host of Insight, the insurance news podcast. Welcome to this special feature episode, during which our managing editor, John Deeks, interviewed the CEO of Australian reinsurance pool corporation, Chris Wallace. Dr. Wallace talks through the crucial detail of the new Cyclone reinsurance pool, which is now operational, including what the scheme hopes to achieve, how it works, and when insurers should join. He also answers questions on a level of premium savings, whether the pool could be extended to cover flood more broadly, and what else needs to happen to solve the insurance affordability crisis in the North. We hope you find this conversation valuable. Since the interview was recorded late last year, Sure Insurance has joined Allianz as participants in the pool. So thank you, Dr. Christopher Wallace, for joining us today from the Australian Reinsurance Pool Corporation. Perhaps you could just start by explaining to us what the Cyclone Reinsurance Pool is all about. Thank you, John. And hello, great to be with you today. Thank you for setting up this uh, opportunity to talk about what we're doing with the Cyclone Reinsurance Pool. As uh, many of our listeners will know, the government launched the Cyclone Reinsurance Pool and we've been very busy making that operational. The legislation passed on the 31st of March, 2022, and so it it is now law, and we've been operational and able to provide cover for cyclone reinsurance from the 1st of July. And we're very excited that Alliance have announced that they will be joining the pool from the 1st of January. We're just working with them at the moment to uh, operationalise that, and we're hoping to be able to soon announce an additional insurer joining scheme. But the pool covers cyclone risk. Cyclone risk in Northern Australia is a very significant exposure and for many years has caused insurance affordability issues. And it has been subject to many government reviews over the years. The pool is designed to reduce the costs of reinsurance for cyclone risk to insurers and to encourage both lower premiums, but also increased competition in Northern Australia. So it it is purposely designed to provide maximum benefits to consumers in Northern Australia in medium and high-risk areas in particular. I'll talk more a bit about that later. The pool does cover home building and contents. It covers small business, SME, and commercial and residential strata. There are some threshold limits on commercial property. There's a $5 million sum insured limit. But it does cover a very large number of, of households and businesses and strata. That's great. Thanks, Chris. So you mentioned Allianz and possibly one other insurer joining. It's mandatory, isn't it? So when do other insurers have to join by? Yes, it is mandatory. The legislation requires insurers that have uh, more than $300 million in home insurance premiums to transition into the pool by the end of 2023, by the 31st of December 2023. Insurers that are smaller have until 31st of December 2024, and there's a a threshold of $10 million. If you're below that threshold, then there's no requirement to to join. But it is mandatory for all insurers who have more than $10 million in home insurance premiums to join the scheme. Great. Okay. And how exactly does it save insurers and therefore consumers money? Because... I think I'm right in saying that the government doesn't actually want to subsidise it. I mean, they they provide a $10 billion guarantee, but they don't want to be subsidising it on a regular basis. Is that right? So how does it actually save money? Yeah. So the legislation requires ARPC to set premiums that are cost neutral to government in the long term. So the timeframe for that's not defined. So we have taken a, a very long-term view of, of cost and have published all of our actuarial modelling that supports that. 
long-term break-even or long-term cost neutral to government means that we don't need to charge a return on capital. Uh, we don't need to add margins for uncertainty. And uh, we also don't have to um, price to uh, one in 200-year event. So let, let me just break that down a bit further. Some of the things that we've done that are quite unique, that we've set the pricing to what we describe as a plausibly large loss event. And a plausibly large loss event is, we've used a series of scenarios for that. It would be a Category 5 or Category 4 cyclone uh, impacting uh, Cairns or Townsville. It would be a Category 2 cyclone impacting Brisbane or, or it's two cyclone traces. They average out at about $13 billion, but we've set a threshold of $15 billion as a plausibly large loss event covering these scenarios. That's about a 1 in 80 year event in our modelling. Insurers are required through prudential regulation to hold capital to a one in 200 year event, which is much larger. And they obviously have to get a return on that capital and price to cover that capital. So we, we are holding a slightly lower risk analysis of, of the exposure and pricing to a one in 80 year event. And because we have a, a guarantee of solvency from the government, we don't have to hold capital to support that. In fact, our, our capital objective in the long term is to have no capital. Breaking even in the long term means having no capital. John, some years I expect the scheme will be in surplus and some years it will be in deficit. But our long-term objective is to break even on both capital and, and on pricing. The other areas of saving is a full transfer of risk. So we're covering risk for insurers from the ground up. So every dollar of claim is being transferred into the scheme. So insurers would need, normally need to receive a return on the risk exposure they're holding, and they would also have to pay for their reinsurance costs. They'd also have to get a return on the capital that supports that. So we're removing all of that in our process. So these will have a real impact on the industry o- over time. Right. Uh, and then I guess we come to one of the key questions, which is what level of savings will this scheme provide to consumers? It's not an easy question to answer, I guess, but the ARPC has published some documents some work done by Finity that has some figures of predicted savings, doesn't it? It does. We have published those. We've published two sets of numbers. Uh, so our initial analysis around 30th of June, and then we updated our analysis around the 1st of October. And the difference between the two is that uh, insurers were able to provide us additional data to be able to undertake our analysis. And it enabled us to reduce our premium rates between the two sets of uh, rates by 10%. So the real effect of that extension and analysis was a 10% reduction in our rates that we are will be charging to insurers. But, but what it was also enabled us to do is uh, have a far more granular understanding of premium savings to consumers. The reinsurance pool is a reinsurance cost and insurers need to include that into their cost inputs and, and allocate that across their portfolio. There's no requirement for it to be a one-to-one pass-through because it is a reinsurance cost and we are working with insurers to help them operationalise that. But our analysis of savings, which we have published, shows that there is an average saving of 13% to premiums to consumers in Northern Australia, Cresta zones. For those consumers that are in high premium band zones in Northern Australia, the savings are larger and 32% on average. 13% on average for everyone in Northern Australia and 32% on average for those in high premium band areas for home insurance. And for SME and Strata, there are also savings. Uh, So average savings for Northern Australia for SME is 10%, and for Strata it's 37%. Great. These savings are real. We are going to be charging a very cost-effective reinsurance cost, and over time these will have a greater and greater impact because we are 
you know, hoping to stabilise the reinsurance cost for this risk in Northern Australia. Right. So an average saving of 32% on premiums for home insurance in the highest risk yeah. areas. That's right. So, I mean, you'll be aware from appearing in front of committees of politicians and from reading the local media in Queensland that there is a view that for a lot of people, the savings won't be that significant and the time that it's taken to get this scheme actually operational. Because some people thought it, savings were going to come through from July the 1st for whatever reason. I guess there's just a view that premiums are going up all the time. By the time these savings start coming through, for a lot of people, it won't be a life-changing amount. How do you see that? Well, I see when I speak to consumers in Northern Australia or consumer representatives, they actually do appreciate that the reinsurance pool will deliver some savings. And I would say that the savings may not be enormous in the first period, but they're going to have a substantial impact over the long term. We are the only part of the insurance and reinsurance sector in Australia and globally that's reducing prices. And we would hope that that will not only stabilise prices, but will impact increasingly each year over time. Right. Do you think it's enough on its own to solve the affordability issue? No, no not at all. It, uh, insurance affordability issue is a very complex problem. You know, it's impacted by risk mitigation, how buildings are constructed and where they're constructed. And there's a lot of other government programs that are underway as well to uh, support risk mitigation and to improve insurance affordability in other areas as well. That has to go in hand with reducing the risk to society, the actual risk of losses, not just what the cost of reinsurance is. Our legislation actually provides us an opportunity to identify data with government agencies to help target risk mitigation programs. And so we're really looking forward to that part of our responsibilities as the pool gets underway as well. That's great. Thank you. Now, tell me about cross-subsidisation because there have been some reports that say, um, you know, there's an element of cross-subsidisation within the pool. So I believe people in lower risk areas their premiums may not go down in order to pass on greater savings to the people in the high-risk areas. Is that correct? That's right. The legislation requires us to set premiums to maximise savings to medium and high-risk areas. And for those that are in low-risk areas, to charge a premium that's comparable to the commercial market. So we've undertaken that analysis. And just to give you some uh, examples, the average cyclone premium in Brisbane this is the average premium for an average house in Brisbane, will be $103 per, per year. In Townsville, it'll be $624. And in Cairns, it's $427. So first of all, you can see from those averages that there's a, there's a higher premium still for Townsville and Cairns that are in, in medium and high-risk areas. But those people in Brisbane still having an average premium of $103, it's still a material, meaningful impact upon their policies. And what we're doing is allocating the profit margins that would otherwise have been saved for low-risk areas and allocating those to medium and high-risk areas. The objective is to keep premiums at the same level uh, in low-risk areas and to maximise savings in medium and high-risk areas. And there's a small number of people that will have increases. Uh, but as I said, in the Brisbane area, the average premium is $103. So it's, a, it's an increase on a relatively smaller premium cost uh, compared to what the premiums are in medium and high-risk areas. Those increases are because there might be differences in modelling view between ARPC and insurers in some instances. Some properties haven't been fully charged to the full risk rate 
some properties have the benefit of um, capping of premiums. Uh, some insurers have made commercial decisions to to limit premiums in some areas. So what we've tried to do is work with insurers to smooth out over time those impacts. There's no requirement for insurers to do a direct pass-through of cost. So we're working with them to try to help smooth out where there's anomalies such as that. But overall, most people will receive a reduction in medium and high-risk areas, and most people in low-risk areas will pay broadly the same premium. So if some people within that cyclone risk zone might be paying slightly more just to subsidise, just to help those people in the high-risk zones, would it have been an option to apply that across the whole country? Let's say someone in Melbourne could pay slightly more to to help someone in, in Cairns. Legislation wasn't set up that way, John. And so there's a number of zero risk areas. We've determined that Tasmania, South Australia, Victoria, the ACT, and a large part of New South Wales and some parts of West Australia are zero risk areas. And so there's no requirement for them to pay premium. That's part of the legislative design. Yeah. Okay. So this is a policy decision, but as you'd be aware, there's been a lot of discussion about the limitations of the pool and and how it's restricted to cyclone and cyclone-related flooding. And a lot of the events we've seen this year, the catastrophe events, have been flooding that hasn't been linked to a cyclone. And there are a lot of people struggling with affordability issues as a result of that risk too. Some people suggest it should be expanded. Do you you see that as an option for the future? Well, it is definitely a decision for the government to consider. It's a government policy decision in terms of what the government's risk appetite is and how it wishes to approach insurance affordability more broadly in the community. Our focus is really very much on making the cyclone pool and the cyclone-related flooding parts of that work as efficiently and effectively as possible. Right. But, I mean, do you think it could work, a flood pool? Well, there are flood pools in other countries. Um, Some of them are successful and some aren't. As I said, I think that cyclone has been an issue that's long been a a problem. There's been many government reviews of it. It's been an issue for perhaps over a decade, if not longer, and it's had the the benefit of several cycles of review. Uh, I think flood's still very early. It's a very significant issue, without question. I'm just devastated by how significant the losses are. Uh, they're staggering. It would require work by the government to consider. Perhaps just to sum up then, Chris, we know that historically some in the insurance industry have had a bit of scepticism towards government reinsurance pools. We have one now, it's operational. Your job is to make it a success, I, I, I guess. How would you sort of tell the industry to view this pool? How do you think it's going to actually pan out and work? So let's take a long-term view to it. This is not a short-term intervention. It's a, it's a long-term activity. The costs should stabilise and over time, those impacts will become very clear. What I would expect is that we're going to have uh, you know, years in surplus and years in deficit. And as those emerge, it'll become really obvious how the prices are supporting insurance affordability and supporting the building of resilience in the reinsurance pool. It's early days. We haven't got a customer on yet. So we, we obviously need to get our first insurer customers onto the scheme and to demonstrate that we can receive the premium and pay the claims. And we're working very hard at making sure that it's a highly automated process. You know, we're trying to um, not uh, get in the way of the way insurers currently perform their work with consumers. Insurers will continue to manage the relationship with consumers, receive premiums, pay the claims. We will be reimbursing them for all of their efforts on the claims paying process. We will be doing our best to publish what premiums we're collecting, how average cyclone premiums are changing over time, and you know, we need to sort of take a sort of a three to five year view on success for this. 
you know in the terrorism pool you pay a dividend to the government for yes. the supply of the guarantee and there's been a bit of publicity about that over the years for various reasons but is there a similar arrangement on this one or not so I'll say this, the objectives of the terrorism pool are quite different to the objectives of the cyclone pool. So the legislative obligations for the terrorism pool are to provide capacity where there's a market failure. We have an obligation to compensate the government for the risk that's been carried, to protect the government balance sheet, and to uh, provide as much capacity as possible. And, and the way we do that is through buying retrocession, building up our net assets, so we've got as much capacity available as we can. And... When we model uh, loss scenarios, like, you know, more than 90%, maybe more than 95% of scenarios that we expect would fall within our net assets or the retrocession reinsurance program that we purchase. So we're fulfilling our, our obligations to government through you know, paying dividends, fees and dividends to government, buying retrocession, protecting the balance sheet of the government and supporting society that way. With the cyclone pool, completely a different objective, which is about lowering the cost of, of, of insurance and reinsurance. And so... The whole focus is um, reducing every possible opportunity of margins, uncertainties or, uh, or, or costs to get the lowest possible reinsurance premium. And so it's unlikely we'll be buying retrocession reinsurance in the short to medium term. And the government balance sheet is a little bit more exposed here under the cyclone pool because we're not going to have the same level of margins or protection. But the objective is to maximise cost reductions. So. Uh, it is a matter for the government in terms of what we pay for these dividends on, but I would say the objectives on terrorism pool is very different to the objectives on the cyclone pool. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Dr. Christopher Wallace, Chief Executive of the Australian Reinsurance Pool Corporation. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, John. Good to uh, spend the time with you and to thank you to the listeners to the podcast who have listened through and happy to take questions, always open to receiving a query. We're here to help. Thank you.